It's Marching Tosh. Welcome to This Week in Retro. Here are this week's top stories. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Activision founders form a new 2600 game dev studio. The demo scene goes legit. Happy Marching Tosh. And the passing of a rock star. All this in our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Keystone Capers, River Raid, Kaboom, Neil. For those of us in the U.S. of a certain age, these games defined our earliest gaming memories. Now, Neil, you have been on record on this show saying that Atari 2600 games are too primitive, too primitive mm. to be enjoyable in this day and age. Do you still stand by this? I kind of regret it a little bit, and it's a very <laughs> timely question, John, because I filmed an Atari 2600 refurb just last week, and then I set it up for some gameplay. Um, it was just fortunate that when I moved into this space, the landlord left a 1970s sideboard, and it was perfect mm. for putting the Atari 2600 on, little lamp next to it, a CRT. It was just lovely to see it in an original setting. So I pulled up the big chair and sat down and played some games on it. And um, I have to say, I, I was really struck by how much better it was than i give it credit for to be honest um i played some games i'd never tried including some that were released as late as 1989 and i was yeah really taken aback by how far the system was pushed these are of course well there are the basic games you know there are the basic bat and ball games from the mm -hmm, early sure. era um but when i got into games like secret quest from 1989 this thing is delivering gameplay that's well beyond what anyone imagined in 1977 when the hardware came out. It was almost like, uh, you know, Legend of Zelda type gameplay on this very primitive hardware. So, yes, I take it back, John. It deserves more credit. Well, yeah, I think just like every retro system, you've got extremely simple games, and oftentimes these were released right at the beginning of a console's life, and then by the end, when everybody figures out all the tricks, uh, even the most basic machine is capable of doing so some pretty amazing things. So a little background to this week's news story. Uh, not long after the launch of the 2600 in 1977, uh, there was a small group of programmers who got tired of the lack of recognition and compensation from Atari, and they decided to leave the mothership and strike out on their own. So they made their own company. That company, of course, was called Activision. Uh, they released some of the best titles on the 2600, Kaboom, Pitfall, River Raid. Uh, they were wildly successful as a third-party publisher. And, of course, Activision continues to exist as one of the largest publishers on Earth, though the original players left the company decades ago. Well, Neil, those original players are back. Uh, subreddit user, user Pajaco6502 clued us into the story that David Crane and Dan and Gary Kitchen have decided to join forces once again and produce new games for the venerable Atari 2600 under the moniker of Audacity Games. Uh, you might recall the name David Crane. He was the creator of Pitfall, which got ported to quite a few micros, while the Kitchen Brothers worked on the ports of Donkey Kong and Kung Fu Master, as well as the Activision original Pressure Cooker. Now, Neil, we're seeing an unprecedented amount of interest in developing new games for old consoles. I know on your side of the pond, the Oliver Twins took an active role in the latest Dizzy release, for example. So which game developer of your would you like to see come out of retirement and code a new game for a retro computer or console? Oh, good question. Good question. And so many to choose from. And I love that these old 
Goliaths of old are, are coming back and forming a new company. Um, because I find developers are often like musicians, you know, they have these periods where they burn really brightly and they do incredible things. And then they might burn themselves out um, or they might go into more of a managerial role running a game studio. So they get a bit out of touch sometimes or sometimes they just kind of coast and dine out on a series over a long period. And yeah. if they've created a franchise that allows them to do that, then all credit to them. That's fair enough. So um, I think for my pick, I'm going to go with a Frankenstein's monster. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put them on the operating table, John, and I want the attention to detail that was delivered by, um, let's say, Jeff Crammond with his revs in his F1 series and stunt car racer. Uh, I want that combined with the psychedelic imagination of Jeff Minter from Llamatron fame. And I want that all wrapped up in a, in a Sid Meier game. How does that sound? Sid Meier's Llama <laughs> Racing Simulator is, is an instant number one hit, John. <laughs> you know, the problem is, is that all those guys would be duking it out to see who got top billing for their name on the this box. This is true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, these guys at Audacity Games, they haven't wasted any time. Um, hot on the heels of the announcement of their studio, they've already announced the pre-order of their first game, which shipped on March 22nd. It's called Circus Convoy. And I, I did some some research on the website. It says that it's described as a multi-screen action-adventure game where gamers play as Andre the Magnificent, a circus strongman. So the game features a variety of nostalgic mini-games with circus props and dozens of adventure-style puzzles to solve. Um, but here's something cool that I haven't seen before. One of the big perks of being an Activision game player back in the 2600 days was having the opportunity to earn patches. I'm talking about real cloth patches that your mom could sew on your jean jacket uh, by achieving certain scores. Uh, you'd take a picture of your, your TV screen, you'd send it to Activision, and then they'd send you a patch if you got a high enough score. Pretty cool. So the Audacity team is offering the same ability. But of course, in these days of Photoshop, it would be way too easy to fabricate a high score screen. So instead of taking a photo, when you get to the game over screen, it also generates, get this Neil, a QR code that you'll <laughs> capture with your phone. <laughs> and it'll automatically report your score to an online leaderboard. How cool is that? That is very cool. It's a really wonderful mix of old and new tech, isn't it? You know, t Take a photo of a QR code Using a device in your pocket that's, what, 100,000 times more powerful than the Atari <laughs> yes. 2600, take a photo of it and submit your high score. There's a really sort of delicious irony to it. I really do love that. Circus Convoy is going to set you back 60 bucks for the standard edition, which includes the box of the manual. There's also a collector's edition at $90, which includes a poster, and it guarantees you a low serial number. Uh, if you want to go all out, 140 bucks, Neil, 140 big-time dollars, get you something uh, uh, that is vaguely uh, worded, many physical collectibles come with this. I don't know what that means. I have a feeling that commemorative coins might be involved, Neil. Uh, the thing is being heavily marketed to collectors. Uh, all this talk of serial numbers, certificates of authenticity. I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest. But I guess in this day and age, scarcity is how you drive sales. Everybody wants to, to get on board. There's the fear of missing out. So anyway, if you're interested, you can find out more information about Audacity and Circus Convoy at audacitygames.com. Neil. I was perusing Retro Rewind the other day, and I was quite pleased to see that in addition to all the new hardware they're producing, in-house, might I add, uh, they've added a full suite of Amiga capacitor kits to their inventory. Now, 
This may be preaching to the choir, but if you have an Amiga, you need to recap it as soon as possible. Neil, how many horror stories have you heard of ruined boards because of blown capacitors? Oh, many, 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 many. And, and sadly, many of them my own. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> you are certainly preaching to the choir. Of course, it varies from model to model just how likely these little blighters are to be leaking. But they will all get to you eventually. And it's better to get this done sooner rather than later for your own peace of mind, John. Yeah. Now, here on the storefront, they've got kits for every single model of Amiga, from the 1000 all the way up to the 4000. And because these come packaged together, you can take the inconvenience of hunting around for individual caps out of the equation. Not to mention you'll get the peace of mind knowing that you have just the right ones for the job and you haven't fat-fingered a wrong part somewhere along the way. Now, these capacitor kits come in at about 20 bucks, and Retro Rewind proudly serves the international community, so no matter where you live, they can get you what you need without breaking the bank with shipping costs. But that's not all. This week in Retro listeners can save 10% off any order by using the promo code T-W-I-R-R-O-C-K-S at checkout. That's right, Twir Rocks with an S at checkout, all caps. Thank you to RetroRewind.ca for sponsoring This Week in Retro. John, the demo scene is the topic of our next story, and a very timely one it is because the mother of all demo parties is nearly upon us. It's Revision, which takes place between the 2nd and 5th of April. And owing to the pandemic, it's an online-only event, just as it was last year. And it was such a great thing to watch last year. They really nailed the online presentation of what is normally a physical meet. It comprises of incredible artists, coders, and musicians all coming together to demonstrate what they can do with your favorite retro and modern computers. And it doesn't fail to blow my mind every single year. So check out 2021.revision-party.net to find out more. John, are you a demo party fan? Do you like to get the beers in and join in with the fun? I've never been to a demo party, Neil. Shocking, shocking, <laughs> I know, as someone with my, my PC lineage that really didn't exist. It, it just wasn't my scene growing up. Um, I've seen tons of pictures since we started doing the Amigos podcast. It's really cool to go back in time, especially to the early 90s, where the scene was sort of at its height, and see all those rows of Amigas set up, you know, with the big screens up front and stuff like that. Uh, they seem like a blast, you know, the modern ones especially, more so, t- you know, tons of friendly folks you get to watch all these demos and, of course, more than a few mugs of cheer to go around. Uh, every year I'm blown away by what the coders at Revision come up with, and I'm sure this year will be no exception. Yeah, it really is incredible. And, you know, you're in the majority. It's only uh, a lucky few who actually get to go to these demo parties. Uh, mm-hmm. So the fact that they're bringing it onto platforms like Twitch to be able to watch and interact with, you can vote for your favorite uh, yeah. demos and things like that. It's, it's fantastic how they do it. But uh, something else has happened this week, which is long overdue, in my opinion. And it's a step towards the acceptance and understanding of the contribution that the demo scene makes to the arts and digital culture. This happened at the Standing Conference of the Ministers of Education and Cultural Affairs, a UNESCO expert committee who have accepted the demo scene as German intangible cultural heritage. God, that's a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, The the scene, of course, is huge in Germany. They really do love a good demo party. And this is part of a wider movement to see the demo scene's cultural contribution recognised, Germany being second only to Finland in achieving this acceptance for the scene. And I tell you what, John, if there's anyone out there who thinks that we can help to push this happening in the UK or the US to get that same acceptance, I'm more than happy to help in any way that I can. Absolutely. 
But do you think this goes far enough, John? I, I'm completely behind seeing the demo scene recognized in this way. But, but what about music and art from video games and not just the demo scene? Do you think that deserves to be recognized in some way as intangible cultural heritage? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think all you need to do is look at what other aspects of our culture have already been designated like that. Um, in the U.S., we have uh, a museum, the, the Smithsonian Museum of American History, and they're kind of the gatekeepers of what is or isn't important in our culture. Um, so if you go there, it's in Washington, D.C., you can see the ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz. Uh, you can see Archie Bunker's armchair. I don't, I don't know if most of our listeners know who Archie Bunker is, but he was, he, there, was a, there was a show called All in the Family that was really culturally important in the States in the 70s. You can even see Michael Jackson's hat. If that doesn't get people in the door, I don't know what will. Um, so I'm sure the video games need to be part of that heritage. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And, and what's the first thing from a video game that you'd put into your US cultural heritage display dedicated to video games or the demo scene, John? What would you pick? If I'm, if I'm going from strictly an American perspective, it has to be hardware. Um, hmm. it, it would have to be, for there, there are two. You know, first would have to be Pong. I mean, Pong is the face that launched a thousand ships in the world of arcade games. It was, it was the first truly successful arcade machine from a revenue perspective. It led the way in terms of how arcade cabinets would be physically designed for decades to come in terms of their height, the way the controls are laid out and stuff like that. Um, a close second would be the Atari 2600, what we just got done talking about. It was the first thing that most people in the States had that actually allowed you to interact with objects on the television screen. I mean, something we take for granted now, but back in 1977, being able to see something on TV that you can make move was, was just, it was earth shattering. Um, and, uh, you know, from an aesthetic perspective, that brown fake wood grain styling, uh, it was definitely a product of its time. It screams, you know, 1970. If we're just talking about art or music, to tell you the truth, that's kind of hard. Um, it's a hard one for me because all of my favorite video game art and music hasn't come from the land of my birth. It's 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 all Japanese. So I guess I'll have to take a pass on that for the time being. What about you, Neil? What what would you say from the UK? Hmm. Um, I would probably want to preserve that lovely look of the isometric games. There was hmm. just something about them, whether it was batman or head over heels on the zx spectrum or solstice on the nintendo entertainment system i'd really like to preserve that snapshot in time when isometric was cutting edge there are loads to choose from so um i, I can't put them all in but for the sake of argument let's go with marble madness i, I know it's not a british game you asked for a british one but i'm just thinking about that isometric theme mm -hmm, sure. and, and marble madness is really a lovely combination of imagery of great music and of course the gameplay as well which is um it's not something um, that you consider when you think about things from the demo scene because gameplay doesn't factor into that. And, and I think that should be celebrated too, the mechanics and the gameplay of these uh, games. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. great news for the scene. And of course, do look out for revision in the coming weeks. I'll be there on the live streams watching it. I hope to see you, uh, some of you there. Or maybe we can have a watch party or something like that. But, but don't miss it. Check it out. Neil, we had Doss Ember a few months ago. So it's only right that the other side of the street gets their turn. That's right, Neil. It is Marchintosh, and it's popping off. 
For the first time, the month of March is dedicated to enjoying firing up your classic Mac for gaming upgrades and general restoration. Now, Neil, we're more than halfway through March already, and time is running short. What Marchintosh projects are you going to be working on? Oh, Marchintosh is popping off. <laughs> I, I, I've never said that. I just wanted to say something is popping off. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> I think we need to get more imaginative with our with our monthly titles. Um, when are we going to get March Markamedes? Archimedes kind of works for us yeah, April, yeah. Archimedes fans. Um, but yeah, I'm afraid I'm not working on any Mac projects at the moment. I did put out a, a video uh, a couple of months back about Apple Macintosh clones, but it wasn't in March, so I missed out. And I think it's a bit naughty to go back and add the hashtag when it didn't come out in March. I've seen a few mm. people do that. It's yeah. a bit naughty, but you know, yeah. it gets you noticed. Um, so yeah, I haven't been working on them. I've been very busy on the Commodore CDTV this month and also the cave itself, the refurb is ongoing. But um, in doing it, I have been doing a lot of thinking and I think I need a corner here somewhere to, to celebrate the Apple computers and the Macintosh. I've got quite a lot of them now piled up. And it'd be a shame not to celebrate the many shapes and sizes of them. But there's no way that's going to be done in time for Marchintosh, sorry. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe I'll make a, a video in, in MacGust. <laughs> mm. doesn't, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue as well. <laughs> it, <yeah>. doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> How about you? Are you making anything, John? Yeah, I've got two G3 towers that I got as part of a package deal uh, uh, last year. And they've sat in my closet since then. They are in need of some serious TLC. These are the so-called blue and white variety of the Power Max, but in their current state, they're more a blue and a shade of disgusting brown gray. Ugh. Uh, it's my hope to clean them up, give them the insides a good going over, and install flash-based hard drives in them so I can have separate SD card builds with both OS 9 and OS 10 installs. Uh, who knows, maybe I'll get a little crazy and attempt a Morph OS install, make Ravi happy. Uh, so, Neil... I know you've got several Macs, but would you consider yourself to be a Mac gamer? No, no, absolutely not at all. Uh, the game that I've played most with Macs is what I like to call the Hackintosh game, which is trying to make... <laughs> it's the, the most OS... dangerous game, Neil. Yeah, yeah, trying to make the Apple OS run on non-Apple hardware. It is a really fun <laughs> game. But um, no, I've had very little experience in playing video games on the Mac. I, I tend not to look at them in that way. I know they're perfectly capable and plenty of people out there will have fond memories of, of classic games on the Mac, but I've always seen them as a desktop publishing machine for something like Quark Express or traditionally machines that you'd use Photoshop or Illustrator on. I know there's very little divide now and you can do all of these things perfectly well on a PC, but people still like to do them on the Mac and I still make that in association. And I think it's because I used to support Macs in a, a primarily PC environment the uh, graphic design department had Macs that I supported. So it kind of reinforced that association for me and it, it's stuck around as it has done for a lot of people. I think they still mm -hmm. make that yeah. association. Uh, but maybe I, I need to change that. Am I missing out by not being a Mac gamer? Well, there's a great book that I've got called The Secret History of Mac Gaming. And I was thumbing through this thing. I was amazed at how many exclusive titles the original crop of black and white Max got. I mean, everybody knows Dark Castle. Everybody knows Oregon Trail. Of course, there was that infamous tile sliding game that came with the original Mac. Um, but, you know, even, you know, against Steve Jobs' greatest wishes, he hated gaming on the Mac. Uh, there were tons and tons of games that were released uh, that uh, kind of flew under my radar. So I'm going to be th thumbing through that, uh, that book again this month and see if there are some more hidden gems to find. Now, Neil, we've had December. We're in the midst of Marchintosh, and one can't forget Septandy. 
That leaves nine other months unclaimed for other retro computing themed action. Which month and which machine are you going to pioneer a hashtag for next? That's easy, John. Easy. I'm going to go for Jamstrad. <laughs> Nothing but Amstrad <laughs> computer content in January's from now on. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? I love it. Um, I'm going to go with Mato. Uh, it's a month to celebrate well. The Mato computer. Now, the Mato, as I'm sure we all know, was a computer produced in Iron Curtain era Czechoslovakia and sold as a self-assembly kit. You think the ZX81 was cheap? This thing sold new in box for 35 euro, and it included three built-in games. So, be on the lookout for the Mato hashtag soon, Neil. Uh, I expect this to be a wildly successful campaign. Uh, oh, and if you want to check out something that's not just a fantasy that's popped into my head, search on Twitter for the hashtag Marchintosh to see all of the neat projects MacHeads are working on throughout the month, and check out the official website at Marchintosh.com. We end this week's show with the passing of Gordon Hall, a developer at Rockstar Leeds. Rockstar, of course, is well known for its Grand Theft Auto franchise, as well as many others, and... Gordon was just 51 years old when he passed, mm. which is no age at all and a very sad loss to the community. Gordon was one of the founders of Mobius Entertainment in 1997, a company which put out Game Boy Advance games, including the GBA adaptation of Max Payne, which for anyone who's played the PC version of the game will know required an awful lot of imagination to adapt that to work in a GBA. But they did it and they did a great job of it. Now, Rockstar's parent company at the time, Take-Two Interactive, snapped up the company in 2004, where under the banner of Rockstar Leeds, they took on many of the PlayStation Portable versions of the GTA series, as well as Midnight Club 3 Dub Edition. They later collaborated with other Rockstar Studios in the development of Max Payne 3, and in 2012, they assisted with the development of GTA 5 in 2013. It's, it's astonishing that GTA 5 was way back in 2013. I just had it in my head that it was way newer than that, but... Um, there we are. So even if you haven't heard of Gordon before now, chances are that you have enjoyed one of the games that he was responsible for. And um, John, a sad fact of a person passing is that, is that we often don't hear their story, not just in video games, but in all realms of life. We, we don't hear their story or worse still, we don't get a chance to thank them for the joy that they gave us until it's too late. And when developers are kind enough to give me their time for an interview on my channel, I always, always like to end the conversation by thanking them for their work, not just for myself, but on behalf of anyone who wants to say thank you to them and have enjoyed the, the, the games that they've made. So with that in mind, are there any developers who have been a positive influence on your life as a gamer who you'd like to say thank you to, John? Oh, absolutely. I mean, without a doubt, it's Shigeru Miyamoto. Uh, I mean, Donkey Kong, Mario... Zelda, any one of those would be, you know, something that you could build your career off of. But having created all three of those, plus countless others, um, it's he would be. I mean, he's been the, the most significant influence on me as a gamer in my life, for you know, w without a doubt. Um, but it's not just creating these characters; it's it's more about his approach to gaming. Um, you know, whether it's it's Super Mario Brothers or his newer games like the Pikmin series. He's simply the best in my eyes for for creating these fantastic universes that that just beg you to jump in and have fun exploring them. You know, whether you're six or you're you're sixty five, um, 
I think this quote from Will Wright that that I found of the New Yorker sums him up perfectly. They were interviewing Will Wright, and Will Wright said that Miyamoto approaches the games playfully, which seems kind of obvious, but most people don't. Uh, and he approaches things from the player's point of view, which is part of his magic. And to me, that that says it all. Um, when you when you start with the player in mind, and you start with a sense of playfulness and wonder in mind, uh, you can do amazing things. Uh, and also, Miyamoto is a huge bluegrass fan. He's a banjo player. So, you know, living in the heart of bluegrass country here in West Virginia, uh, we, we could, we'd have something non-gaming related to talk about, too. Um, on the computer side of things, uh, I'd really like to thank Trip Hawkins for publishing so many great 8-bit micro games and, and packaging them so attractively in those 45 style uh, sleeve packaging that the early EA games came in. Even though he didn't actually develop all those games, he and his team had to choose the best to put out under the EA banner and he did just a fantastic job. Now, how about you, Neil? Who would you like to thank? Mm, great choices. Uh, Miyamoto also, um, he was instrumental in opening the doors for others as well and letting yes. them into the industry. Um, a good example is Richard Kay, who I spoke to recently of Software Creations. Um, it was Miyamoto who, who gave him the nod and let a very small British software development house into that Nintendo ecosystem. And mm. it was one of the first companies outside of Japan who got to do that um, on his say because he was so impressed with the game. Uh, it was a game called Solstice, which they came up with as a demo. So, um, yeah, not just his own creations, but enabling and opening the doors for others is, is a big part of what makes yeah, him Yeah, that, that's a great point. It, by all accounts, he's a very selfless guy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, for me, there are so many. Um, I would pick out the late Mike um, Singleton, responsible for games like Lords of Midnight uh, and later Midwinter, both great games, which I'm a huge yeah, great fan games. of. If we're going to flip over to the hardware side, I would love to have been able to have thanked Jay Miner, the father of the Amiga, who we lost in 1994, and Sir Clive Sinclair, who's a sprightly 80 years old now. And I'm sure many people would like to thank him for the influence that he had on their lives with his machines. Um, but if you're going to do so, you, you most likely need to phone him because he famously doesn't use a computer. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, he says that having these things around um, mechanical and technological things around him stunts the process of invention. So maybe send him a postcard. But um, <laughs> on the off chance that you're listening, Sir Clive, thank you very much for everything that you do. Um, you know, John, in, in the modern day, people are very quick to jump on game studios and direct anger towards them when they make a decision that they don't agree with or they do something with a game franchise that they don't like. And it, it's easy to forget that behind these gigantic studios, uh, games companies, um, they started out often with people like Gordon Hall behind the scenes, founding those studios, working their way up. And, and their history goes back decades across multiple generations of gamers. It's not all just about the here and the now and, and that particular game that you've got angry about so i would encourage everyone to look up your favorite studio look up your favorite developer just take a moment to thank them a tweet or an email and i think you'd be surprised how far up the chain a thank you message can get even in these large companies so um that's your good deed for, for today go out and say thank you to your favorite developers um and of course our thoughts and our well wishes go to the family of gordon hall Last week's community question of the week was, what game would you like to see demade into a point-and-click adventure? What do we have from the community, Neil? Well, uh, the top answer was from Devolution, who says, with amazing locations and outstanding story, I would love to play a point-and-click version of the Bioshock series. 
I can see the Mr. Bubbles pixel art already. Great choice. Oh, yeah. Great choice. Uh, Kess Monkey says Cyberpunk 2077 going very new because mm. it would probably run well. Ooh, <laughs> okay. Iceburn. Uh, seriously, no. Uh, I love Cyberpunk as a theme, and I'd really like to see a colorful, neon-drenched pixel art representation of a Cyberpunk world with a chiptune synthwave score. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%, Kess Monkey. Yeah, and there's a couple of replies that are relevant to that. One was from me. I said, have you played Blade Runner? Because that's a great point-and-click game, which follows that cyberpunk theme, of course. And Chris RR has suggested Beneath the Steel Sky, another fantastic yeah. choice. And then uh, the next answer was from Super Cruiser 5000 who thinks um, Defender of the Crown has some possibilities as it has many locations and could involve multiple realms, some romance, and jousting. Great I choice. think that that's a yeah. fantastic idea. I mean, you could design all the different castles and realms to look a little bit different. You know, the different castle architecture styles, tons of opportunities to interact with NPCs and solve puzzles. I'm a big fan of that one, too. So thank you, everybody, for uh, for submitting your, your answers on our, our subreddit. We appreciate it. Um, and, uh, Neil, what is this week's community question of the week? This week's community question of the week is what development studio would you like to see come out of retirement to produce a new game for a retro computer or console? All you have to do is post your answer on the This Week in Retro subreddit and upvote your favorite responses. We'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the show next week. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.